Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. Well, we're going to keep going in our series. We're doing this series. I forget already what I titled this series. I just know what it's about. Um, But we've been doing this series, Grounding the Christmas Story in the Bigger Story. And this whole idea that the Christmas story does not stand on its own. It's not this cute, neat little story that just stands, starts in Matthew, ends, you know, in in Matthew, and that's it. The Christmas story is part of a much, much bigger story. And we've been unfolding that story and unpacking that story uh, out of the Old Testament. And uh, I wish I had time to go back and review everything we've done in the first three weeks, but we don't. Plus, we have the kids with us in this service. Okay, so uh, I've got to keep going here because around 15 or 20 minutes, things are going to get a little restless, and I'm watching my kids uh, right here in the fourth row. Um, So we're glad to have you kids with us uh, today, I think, but uh, we're going to go to Matthew. So anyway, we've been talking about Abraham, lots about Abraham. Today, we're going to talk about David because he is really important to this Christmas story. uh, so they're not quite done with the offering, but we'll, we'll go anyway. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start in Matthew, and then we're going to go back into the Old Testament. Uh, but Matthew chapter 1, one of the most exciting passages of Scripture. I know that you all love to go there for your devotions because it's a genealogy, okay? How many of you really love to read genealogies uh, for you? Okay. This is going to be a long Christmas Eve service because <laughs> I'm going to read to you the whole thing, and then we're going to go to the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This will be the first message you ever heard with so much of a genealogy. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew writes this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay? So Matthew's going to preach to us a message out of this genealogy. And I've been telling you this entire month, this whole series, that the Christmas story starts in the Old Testament, and that's exactly what Matthew is saying here. Okay, it is essential that if Jesus be the promised one, going back to Genesis, who's going to solve all of our problems, it's really, really important that he be the son of two men, that he be the son of David, that he be the son of Abraham. Okay, and we've talked lots about Abraham already in this story, in this uh, series, and we're going to get to David today. All right, verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now we're going to stop lots during this genealogy because, like I said, Matthew's going to preach a message to us in this genealogy. And the first message, well, after the son of David, son of Abraham part, but the next message he's going to preach to us is he's going to throw women into this genealogy, okay? Now, that's not that wild to us living in Canada here in 2016, almost 2017, but this is a Jewish genealogy. They didn't usually include women, okay? This is a male genealogy. It's fathers and sons, right? Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, and now all of a sudden, Matthew, out of left field, he throws in a woman. He's going to do this four times, not including Mary, okay? And the women he chooses to put in this genealogy preach a message to us. Okay, and Tamar is this first woman. One of the biggest messages that these four women, one of the biggest things these four women have in common, these four women he's going to include in the genealogy, is that all four of these women are not women you or I would put in a genealogy of the Messiah of the King of Kings. And so Tamar, why would he all of a sudden throw in Tamar? What's so special about Tamar? Well, Tamar appears in one place in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis chapter 38. It's one of those chapters that you probably shouldn't let your kids read before they're 11 or 12, okay? It's one of the most shameful, embarrassing, gross, 
uh, sinful chapters, uh, you know, recordings of sin in the entire Old Testament, and I'm not going to give you all the gory details here on Christmas Eve, but just to run over them quickly, because Matthew has very intentionally put Tamar in his genealogy. Why? Well, what happened in Genesis 38, the only place she appears? Well, uh, Tamar, Judah, there's Judah up there, uh, Judah verse 3, and Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah, which doesn't look too bad. But the thing you have to understand is that Judah had two other boys first, and they were named Ur and Onan, okay? Not great names, I know, okay? But whatever, okay? He had Ur and Onan, okay? Uh, he got Tamar as a Canaanite wife for his first son, Ur. Now, Genesis 38 tells us that Ur was such an evil man, God killed him, okay? He was a bad, bad man, all right? So then, and I know we don't do this anymore, but this is how it happened in that culture, they passed Tamar onto the second son, Onan, okay? Genesis 38 tells us that Onan was so evil that God killed him too, okay? So now at this point, Tamar and Judah are in a bit of a quandary. Tamar's problem in that culture is a, a woman needed a husband to take care of her. It was not good for a woman to be on her own. And so Judah had had another son. He was still quite young then. Uh, Shelah was his name. But Judah is now starting to have second thoughts about Tamar. He's starting to think she's like bad luck or something, okay? And so Judah promises to Tamar, I'm going to give you, if you just wait around, you can marry Shelah when he gets old enough. But then Shelah gets old enough, and Judah keeps stalling, not, you know, marrying him off, okay? Now, to make a long story short and to glaze over on this Christmas Eve a few of the gory details, uh, Tamar tricks Judah, and they end up together, and they have babies together. Okay? This is the father-in-law and the daughter-in-law. They have Perez and Zerah together. Okay? Now, that is, whoa, why Matthew? Okay? Now, remember, this is, that's a disgusting story. You're going, whoa, that's disgusting. Now, remember, I didn't put her in the genealogy. Matthew did. And the thing is, he didn't have to. Okay? He, th this is not a genealogy about the moms. This is a genealogy about the dads. He could have left Tamar out. He explicitly and purposely puts her in there. I want to just discuss two reasons, and there, there might be more, there probably are more, but I want to just discuss two reasons, because Matthew is most certainly preaching a message to us by putting Tamar in there. First message Matthew is preaching to us is that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to be associated with sinners. Have you ever thought about what kind of a God we serve? If you or I was putting together a genealogy of the King of Kings, the Messiah, okay, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if we saw details like this, well, first of all, if we were in charge of it, we would make sure there was no details. We would not have sinners in Jesus' genealogy. Jesus had sinners in his genealogy. But Jesus didn't just have sinners in his genealogy. He expressly taps Matthew on the shoulder, his Holy Spirit does, while Matthew's running out, writing out the genealogy, and he's like, Psst, Matthew, I want Tamar in there. Why? Why? Because I want everybody to know that I am not ashamed to be associated with sinners. Does Jesus approve of the sin? Absolutely not. But he says, I am proud to have Tamar in my family tree. You ever thought about that? That Jesus would be proud to have a Tamar in his family tree. Second thing we learn from this, and this is, just, this is just an amazing truth in and of itself that Tamar pops up in here. Second thing we learn is that Jesus can redeem the most shameful events from our past. 
Have you ever thought about this? What, what are Jesus' options? Tamar and Judah, that's a gross story. Genesis 38, that's a gross story. If God is just a holy, judgmental God, if that's all he is, then his options are very easy. Kill Tamar and Judah, they're gone, okay? He doesn't do that. If God is just a forgiving God, he can just forgive the whole event and then let's forget about it and never go back and never talk about it again. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't forget about it and wash it off as if it never happened. He doesn't just judge it and get rid of the people. He does something even more glorious. This is, this is something to give Jesus glory for. He actually takes the event itself, this hideous, sinful, shameful act, which he does not approve of. He's a holy God. It's not that he approves of it, but he takes the event and he actually redeems it so that good actually comes out of sin. Perez and Zerah, okay? So the line is, they're twins, so they got listed together. Zerah's actually not in the line of, of, of Jesus. As we follow the generations through, it comes through Perez. But Perez is born out of this sinful act. Jesus has just taken something so shameful and he's actually turned it for good. Is that not mind-blowing? I wonder how many of us here today come into Christmas carrying things we don't even want to think about, things from our past. And it's so shameful and so embarrassing and so just like, ick, how could Jesus ever forgive that? Here's the powerful thing about Jesus. Not only can he forgive it, he can redeem the worst things from your past. See, here's the thing about Jesus. His goodness is bigger than our badness. You ever think about that? When your badness and shame collide with Jesus' goodness and glory, your badness and shame doesn't stain. It's not that he approves of your sin, not at all. But when your badness and shame collide with his goodness and glory, your badness and shame gets washed away. His goodness and glory doesn't get stained. And so Jesus says, I'm proud to have Tamar in my family line. That's unbelievable. It really is. But we keep reading. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. We have two more women. I just un underlined them there. I told you he put uh, that Matthew's going to put four women in this genealogy, not counting Mary, and he's preaching a message to us through them. Why would he put Rahab and Ruth in here? I'll tell you why because they're both Gentiles. See, if you read the Old Testament, the Jewish people are the promised people of God. But I've been telling you throughout this series, the promised Abraham, God said, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through this Messiah. I'm going to bless every single nation. And even in the genealogy, God is saying to us, he's preaching to him a message. He says, God loves all the nations of the earth. And he says, I want you to highlight Matthew. I want you to highlight Rahab because she's a Canaanite. And I want you to highlight Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Now, of all the people in the Old Testament, the Moabites were considered to be some of the worst, okay? I'm going to read you a passage. God actually, the Moabites were so bad, they were constantly uh, uh, bringing the Israelites uh, into idolatry and sexual immorality, and they were so bad, they're like the kid down the street, and you have little kids, and you say, you're not allowed to play with them, okay? This is what God said in Deuteronomy 23. He said to the Israelites, you're not allowed to play with the Moabites, ever, Okay, that's how bad they were. I'll show you. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 to 4. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. Okay, now that's bad. 
A Moabite marries an Israelite, they have a baby, that's one generation, can't play with them, okay? They marry an Israelite, two generations, can't. Down and down and down to the 10th generation, no Moabite is allowed to worship with you Israelites because God said they constantly drag you away into immorality and idolatry. Now, that's mind-blowing. So specifically, the Old Testament labels Moabites, you got to watch out for these people. And yet, specifically, we've got Ruth, a Moabite, in the genealogy of Jesus. God says to us, there isn't a group of people anywhere, there isn't a person anywhere that's unreachable or untouchable to me. He says, I'm going to redeem all the families of the earth. There's no one I can't reach. There's no one that's not going to be touched by this blessing. Even the Moabites are going to find their way into the kingdom of God. Some of them are. It's amazing, amazing. Well, before we keep reading, I want to keep reading just one minute, but I want you to notice one thing from that genealogy that we've read to you so far. We've gone through one-third of it, okay? If you've been counting, which I bet none of you has, we've gone through exactly, and this is important because it's going to come up a bunch of times, we've gone through exactly 14 generations, okay? Or we'll have gone through exactly 14 generations from Abraham to David, okay? So, uh, from, oh, so 14. So you just remember that. We're going to come back. 14 is an important number. We'll keep reading. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We have a fourth woman listed. And again, it's all associated with sin. Every single time these women are listed, it has to do with something bad that Jesus is redeeming. When David had Solomon, he didn't have Solomon by his own wife. He had Solomon with another man's wife, right? Uriah the Hittite, who he then turned around and murdered. And you go again, why put this in the genealogy? Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with sinners. And here's another example where he redeems a sinful act and actually takes Solomon, who is the fruit of a relationship that should never have happened. Again, God does not approve of the adultery, but he's even able to take the fruits of that adultery and turn it for good and redeem it into the messianic line. It's amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Now, it's going to get interesting again here. I, I talked to you before a little bit about the number 14. Okay? We're going to see Matthew doing something very specific again here, having to do with numbers. When Matthew goes, this is the only time he does this in this entire genealogy, but he says, Joram is the father of Uzziah. If we compare this list of names with another list of names in Chronicles, see, all of these guys here in this list, in this part of the list, are kings. Okay? Because they're in the line of David, so they were kings. If we compare this to a line of kings in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, we're going to see that Matthew has intentionally left out three names, okay? I'm just going to compare. We're going to put it up there. I don't have lots of room today. They put up these beautiful decorations, which I love. So I'm, I'm working with a little less of a screen there. But on the right, that's 1 Chronicles chapter 3. And if we look at 1 Chronicles chapter 3, we have Joram is the dad, but we don't have Uzziah right after Joram. We have three kings. We have three sons in between. Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, and then Uzziah. But on the left side, on the Matthew side, Matthew's just squished it down to Joram, okay, is the father of Uzziah. Now, why did Matthew do that? And second of all, is he lying? Did he make a mistake? He's not lying. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't change the family tree. This is perfectly an acceptable thing to do in Jew Jewish genealogies. In a long genealogy, you could skip from a great-grandpa to a son and just say he fathered this person and delete a few steps in between, okay? That was just, that could easily be done, okay? 
Now, this is really important in the Matthew one because Matthew, we're going to see that Matthew did this on purpose, okay? Because as we keep reading now, okay, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and, uh, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, if we count up Matthew's... Um, generations again. So from Abraham to David, we got exactly 14. If we count from David down to the deportation to Babylon, we're going to get exactly 14 again. But now we're going to see the fact that Matthew got 14 in this second set of names is on purpose because he left out three. If he would have put those other three in, he would have had 17. So now we know Matthew is intentionally, he's intentionally preaching a message to us through this number of 14. All right, we're going to keep going. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. And Sheltiel, we're going to skip ahead a few verses now. Okay, I got you most of the, the, the genealogy. I know you're sad that I'm not getting the other four verses. But, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now Matthew sums it up. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, excuse me, 14 generations. Three sets of 14 generations. Now, numbers are really important in Jewish culture, more important than they are to us now. They meant things, okay? So we can see here clearly, Matthew has clearly put together, this number 14 is important, this number three, he has divided up from Abraham to Jesus, he's divided it up into three groups, they're all 14. What are the significance of these numbers? Well, in Jewish culture, the number three signified fullness or completion. So the fact that he has divided this into three sets of 14 from Abraham to Jesus is saying to us that Jesus is the completion or fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham. Okay? So notice, we've been, we've been talking lots about Abraham in this series. God said to Abraham, through your offspring is going to come blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, Matthew comes along and he says, here's three. Here's a set of three 14s. What he's saying is with that sets of three, that number three is Jesus is the fulfillment or the completion of that promise to bless all the nations that was given to Abraham, okay? So what's the 14 all about, okay? Well, the number 14 was very important in Jewish culture because it was the number associated with one of the most important men in the entire Old Testament, okay? And so I just got to give you a little bit of background in ancient times, in ancient cultures and languages, uh, alphabets would double as numbers, okay? Like, we just take it for granted now. We have a set of, of symbols called numbers, and we have a set of symbols called letters, and those are two different things, okay? But that is a relatively, well, I shouldn't say recent. It's 1,500 years old, but it's, it's, so it's, a little, it's been a long time in the making. But in ancient times, that's not what they had, okay? Like, Roman numerals, Roman numbers were just letters from the, Roman, from the Latin alphabet, Okay? Same with the ancient Hebrew language. Uh, the ancient Hebrew language, the letters equaled numbers, okay? So like, for example, their letter A would be one and their letter B would be two. And so the result of this, that your letters double as numbers as well, the, the thing that comes out of that is that everybody's name, so if, if, if the letters of the English alphabet were also numbers, then your name would also be a number. And so in Hebrew times, every person's name was also associated with the number according to whatever letters were in their name, okay? So now if I, if I put this up on the screen, I want to show you this with, with uh, David, okay? 
So there's David in, in English, got five letters. Now, in Hebrew, they didn't write the vowels. Okay? So we got to take out the vowels. So in Hebrew, the name David is DVD, not a movie, okay? But, so that it's, but no, it's just David. It's just got the vowels out, right? So that's David. Now, in the Hebrew alphabet, our equivalent of D, their letter, their letter D is the fourth letter, so it's the number four. And their equivalent for our V is, is the number six, okay? It's the sixth letter in the alphabet. So when you add those together, you get four plus six is 10, plus the second D is another four, that's 14. And so David's name was associated with the number 14. And because David was such an important person in the Old Testament, the number 14 actually became kind of a really important number in, in the Jewish culture. And so when Matthew divides this genealogy up, he's, this is all a message from Matthew. When he divides it into three sets of 14, he's tying it to Abraham, he's tying it to David. He's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham in 14s, he's stamping the son of David all over this genealogy. This is all about David. And actually, Matthew's whole gospel is all about Jesus being the son of David. Very important to Matthew, okay? That Jesus be the son of David. Now, why is it so important that Jesus be the son of David, okay? Quick recap. Let's go through three of the major points in the Old Testament storyline, okay? Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve. And he says, I'm going to send an offspring of a woman. This promised one is going to be an offspring of a woman. We learn two things, and he's going to crush the head of Satan. In that promise, we learn two things. This promised one, this Messiah, would have to be a human being. And number two, not an angel, not something else, have to be a human being. And we knew one thing he would do is he would crush the head of Satan. We don't know much else. Not a lot of details there. This promise, there's going to be a human being. He's going to crush Satan's head. Genesis 12, we get a second promise that, that opens up more what this promised one's going to be. Genesis 12 said it's going to come from Abraham's family, going to bless all the families of the earth. So we learn two more things. In Genesis 3.15, we learn he's going to be a human being. He's going to crush Satan's head. Genesis 12, we learn he's not going to be just any human being. He's going to be one of Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people. And we learn he's not just going to crush Satan's head. He's going to somehow bless all the nations, but we don't know how, Okay. Okay, so from those two promises, we just know some bare facts. We don't know a lot. We know he's going to be a blessing. We know he's going to crush Satan's head. We know he's going to be a human being in the Jewish, in the Jewish race. We don't know much else, okay? Until we come to the covenant with David. In 1 Chronicles 17, I'm going to read it to you. God's going to come now just like he did to Abraham, just like he did to Adam and Eve. He's going to give a new promise, a new covenant to David. And in this covenant, he's going to expand on who this promised one's going to be. He's going to expand on who this Messiah is going to be. So I'm going to read it to you. First Chronicles 17. And I'm going to get a drink first. So, First Chronicles 17, verse 3. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Okay? Now there's a whole bunch of details in here. It would be fun to you know, spend whole messages on the, on the covenant of David. But we're going to skip ahead a few verses. Verse 11. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Remember, there was a promise to Adam and Eve of an offspring. There was a promise to Abraham through your offspring. Always this offspring. Through your offspring, so Adam and Eve, anybody in the human race can be human. Through Abraham, we learn it's going to be through Abraham's family, the Jews. Now we're going to learn within the Jewish people, it's going to be from David's family, okay? Through your offspring, I will raise up your offspring after you and one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. So note, take note of that word forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. By the way, I would love, this would be fun to really blow this up a little bit, but right here, we, it's, in, it's in the covenant with David that we begin to see foreshadowings here as well, that not only will this Messiah be the son of David, he'll also be the son of God. Which, of course, now in the New Testament, we know Jesus being the God-man, okay? But we start to see more and more of this. We see some of this in Psalms and Proverbs as well. He shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, speaking of King Saul, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever, okay? Three things now we learn from the covenant with David. So the first two promises with Abraham and Adam and Eve, we know he's going to be a human being, we know he's going to crush Satan, we know he's going to bless the nations, we don't know how. In the covenant with David now, we get this really blossoming more details of who this promised one, this Messiah is going to be. Three things we learned, okay? First of all, son of David, he's going to be part of the family of David, okay? Second of all, what we learn is this Messiah is not going to be just any regular human being. He's not just going to make a difference in his little 70 or 80 year old lifetime. Whatever he does, when he comes, he's going to stick around forever, okay? So this, that is something we did not know from Genesis 3.15 or the Abrahamic promise. Uh, those promises, he could have just been a regular human being. But here we see this Messiah is going to be different. When he comes, the, what he's going to be doing, he's going to live forever. And, and that, that's a really important part. It's it, eternal. And then number three, we learn that he's going to be a king. This is super, super important. See, Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12 didn't tell us how. How is he going to crush Satan? And how is he going to bless all the nations? First Chronicles 17 starts to fill in the details. He's going to be a king forever. He's going to set up a kingdom on the earth, a real kingdom. He's going to be a real king. He's going to have a real kingdom, and he's going to root out all wickedness and injustice. Later on, we're going to find out he's even going to root out sickness and death and suffering, but he's going to get rid of wickedness and evil, and he's going to rule and bring peace and justice and love. And as a result, the rest of the Old Testament is basically uh, the prophets. You want to know what the prophets are all about? The, the, you, you go to the second half of the Old Testament. After this promise is made, the prophets are all based on this, the covenant with David. They continually now, from this point forward, see, before the covenant with David, people didn't really have anything concrete to look forward to. There's sort of this vague promise. Some kind of a redeemer is coming of the Jewish people, he's going to crush Satan, he's going to bless the nations. We don't really know how. From this point on, the rest of the Old Testament, there's a very clear and a very concrete and specific hope. They're all looking forward now to one thing, and that is a kingdom. The rest of the prophets, that's what they're all looking forward to. The rest of the Old Testament, many dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of passages. This is what they're all talking about. They're looking forward to a king. A real king is going to come and set up a real kingdom on the earth. And in that kingdom, there's going to be no more wickedness, no more evil, no more sickness, no more disease. A real kingdom. And now people from this point on have something specific to look forward to. Now I'll just give you a couple, couple of examples. Like I said, I could show you many, many, because this is what all the prophets are about. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 to 6, Jeremiah prophesies this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. 
Notice how concrete this expectation is. Now, it's not this vague promised one anymore. It's a king. This is what we're looking forward to. And deal wisely, and this king is going to execute justice and righteousness in the land. If we went another verse further, we would see, in in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7. They just read that up here during the worship time. I love that. We didn't plan that. It's just a good passage. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He's going to actually be in charge. He's going to be making the rules. It's going to be a real, a real kingdom. See, the reason I'm making a big deal of this is in the Old Testament, they had this clear hope, this concrete hope of a real king and a real kingdom. The interesting thing is now since Jesus came, a lot of us evangelicals have lost this hope. Because we've gone into the Bible and we've spiritualized everything. So we've spiritualized all the truths. So now, what we, when we think about uh, what did Jesus come for, he came to live in our hearts. Well, first of all, amen. That's a whole other message that his spirit comes and lives in our hearts is a really amazing thing. And it is true. That's a benefit. That's, that's part of the reason he came. But that is not what the people in the Old Testament look forward to, that he would just set up an invisible kingdom inside of our hearts. Man, the whole world will just keep going to hell, really, prover- you know, in reality and proverbially, but the whole world is going to keep getting worse and worse, but at least we have an invisible kingdom in our hearts. That's not what Jesus came to do. That's not what they were looking forward to. They weren't looking forward to a spiritual kingdom. They were looking forward to a real kingdom, a real place to live where people don't get sick anymore, where bad people don't live, where bad things don't happen to people. No more sickness and disease. No more bad guys. Those of you with kids, you've probably had to deal with this whole issue of the fear of bad guys. I don't know how many of you parents have ever had to talk to your kids about bad guys. Oh, it's just me and a couple others. Okay. <laughs> so my kids are messed up. Boaz, well, that's our youngest, our fourth. He's not in here today, thank goodness, because this message we already have derailed with him. He's insane at the age of three. But anyway, uh, a couple of nights ago, this is now a regular conversation I have with him at bedtime, but a couple of nights ago, he's like, Dad, and very serious. Dad, what, what would you do if bad guys came and took me away? So now what do you do in this situation, right? They're not parenting books for this, okay? Now, to be honest with you, I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but it's what I'm doing and it gets him to sleep anyway. But if he asks me about bad guys, I always tell him the same thing. I am going to beat the living daylights out of those bad guys if they come. And I'll take one of his stuffies and just like put in a headlock and show him. And then he feels safe and he's like, ah, and he goes to sleep, right? <laughs> Actually, I wish it was that easily. He, oh, it's bedtime going to be up. But anyway, um... I don't know if that's the right thing to do to be promoting violence to your kids at nighttime, but whatever works. But that's the kingdom, right? That, everybody in the Old Testament, that's what they were looking forward to. A real king who would really overcome evil. A wonderful place to live. A city here on, on earth. They had a real yearning for a real place. Not clouds and floating and harps, but a real kingdom on earth. And when we get to the New Testament... If we pay attention, we have so spiritualized the stories of the Bible that we fail to read them anymore, and that includes the Christmas story. When the angel angel comes to talk to Mary, we just read this as this kind of spiritual Christmas story thing, but actually, if you just read it, nowhere does the angel talk about a spiritual kingdom. The angel does not come to Mary and say, your son is being born so that he can live in people's hearts. Now, amen again. I'm Absolutely, his spirit lives in our hearts, and that is a wonderful truth, and that's a different message. 
But that's not what the angel comes to proclaim to Mary in a Christmas story. Look at this, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now look at this. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now Mary is only thinking of this in one way. David was a real king with a real throne and real descendants. Okay? And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is Mary's hope, is a real kingdom. That this son is going to overcome Herod and the Roman empires and everything bad in this world and set up a real kingdom on earth. Now you say, well, he hasn't done that yet. Yes, you're right. At his first coming, he didn't set up his kingdom. He was just revealed as the king. So he had some unfinished business to do, which they did not see all that clearly in the Old Testament. They did not see the need for a sacrifice, for the king to sacrifice himself in order to pay for our sins. And so at his first coming, he was revealed as the king to come, and he had to take care of that unfinished business in terms of paying for our sins. So the promises of Christmas actually haven't been fulfilled yet. The Christmas story isn't done yet. Our hope is not hey, Jesus came and now there's an invisible kingdom in my heart. No, no. Our hope is that he's going to come back someday and he really is going to be king over the earth. We're not going to just play harps. We're not going to just float. It's a real kingdom with grass and dirt and sky and lots and lots of food. Really good food. And nobody's going to be gluten intolerant. Nobody's going to have to diet. We're going to eat. It's going to be food and music. We're going to have fun. We're going to have meaningful work. Did you know, actually, this is not just kind of a funny thing to think about once a year at Christmas. Did you know this is actually supposed to be the hope that drives us? As Christians, this is, this is what drove You go back now and read the second half of the Old Testament. You spend some time in the coming months reading the prophets and see if I'm not telling the truth. The covenant with David, this covenant, this hope of a real kingdom and a real king where everything is good and there's no more injustice. And I mean, people who struggle with depression and you don't know what it's like even to get up in the morning and not feel that sinking, hopeless feeling that it'll never get better. To think that someday there will be a real kingdom here on earth and those of us who give our lives to Jesus will live in it. That every moment of our lives for all of eternity will be bursting with good things. That our lives will overflow with so much joy it'll just about blow our gaskets. Meaningful things to do. Celebrations. Joy. Amazing relationships. Peace. That is the hope of the Old Testament. And that is actually in the New Testament as well supposed to be our hope. Let me finish this message with just a couple of passages. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 tells us this about the Old Testament saints. These all died in faith. Look at this. These all died. The Old Testament saints died not having received the things promised. They died without life becoming all cheery and good. They died without, let me repeat that, they died without everything becoming cheery and good. The prophet Isaiah spent his whole life serving God and prophesying for him, and at the end of his life, they sawed him in two. Oh. They had bad, many of them led bad, hard, 
painful, horrible lives. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles here on earth. The Old Testament saints did not look for the good things to happen in this life. They looked for them to happen in the next. How flipped is that from so much of Christianity today where when bad things happen to us now, we get bitter at God for not answering our prayers? We get bitter at God because somehow we expected that everything was supposed to be hunky-dory in this life. Hunky-dory, you can write that down. (laughs) The Old Testament saints didn't think it was supposed to be hunky-dory in this life. They said they were strangers and exiles on this earth. Now look at this, verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They weren't seeking their rest in this life. They were seeking a better place, a better kingdom. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, the one we're living in right now, they would have had opportunity to return. Let's just go back to worldly living. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Jesus warned us that in this lifetime we would have many troubles. And what weighs people down, what will weigh you down is when your life, when your mind, when your brain, when your thought life is more focused on all of your problems here and you don't have a hope in heaven that is big enough to outweigh the worries of this life, then you will fight a losing battle against doubt and despair. And that's what many, that's what many Christians do. You're still saved. God loves you. He's still got you in his hands. But you in your life, will not have a victorious overcoming faith because your mind is more filled with the present worries of this life than it is with the hope of the next life. And somehow, at some point, we have to burrow into the Word of God and take some of these promises and meditate on them and memorize them and meditate on them and pray them and pray them and pray them until the weight of our hope in the next age outweighs the suffering in this one. That's the only way we're going to get rid of our bitterness and our doubt and our lack of faith and overcome in the midst of suffering. Can I finish with one final verse? I have memorized this verse and I think many of you need to do the same. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Look at, look at Paul's. Look at, look at how Paul tells us to deal with sufferings in this present time. He does not counsel us. See, some of us, we think the way to counsel people who are in suffering is cheery optimism, it's going to turn around. Just keep your chin up. It's going to turn around. Now, sometimes it does turn around. Oftentimes it does turn around. But actually, as a pastor here, and I've had this opportunity again over the last month to pray with people in situations, a number of them, different ones, physical health, relationships, different things that are, they're going through, and I pray with them. And some of these people, it actually might never turn around. How do you encourage people like that where it actually might not turn around? How do you tell, you pray with someone and you want to just say, oh, I just, it's going to get healed and you're going to be better. And actually, it just probably won't be. How do you help people like that? I'll tell you, the Bible, it's all right there in the covenant with David. This is our hope. It's not here. Romans 8.18. Look at this. This is how Paul counsels us. This is his mindset. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing 
to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The reason so many Christians are overcome with doubt and fear and bitterness at the evil that goes on around us in the world is because our hope of that future glory is far too small and our experience of the reality of suffering is far too big. The more we suffer and the more we read the news and see the bad stuff going on around us in the world, we're going to get that hard edge and we're going to lose faith and we won't overcome. The more we are inundated with that bad news and the stuff that goes on in our lives, the more we have to get in here and remind ourselves that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The very next verse, if you go to the next verse, verse 19 in Romans 8 says this, for the creation itself is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The glory of what it's going to be like when we get our resurrected bodies and what we're going to experience in that real kingdom is going to make all the suffering and the evil of this, of this present time, it's going to all wash away because the goodness of Jesus is far bigger, not only than our badness, but than Satan's badness too. For I do not consider that the sufferings of this present time are worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, that's faith, and that's where our hope is supposed to be. I want to pray now, but before you bow your heads and close your eyes, there might be someone here, maybe it's even a kid. Maybe you're even a kid here today. And maybe the Spirit's tugging on your heart that you want to live in Jesus' kingdom too. It's a real place, and he's a real person, and he's coming back. And it's very easy to get entrance into that kingdom. All you have to do is ask Jesus. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to just say a prayer. And if you just feel tugging on your heart by the Holy Spirit, you say, I want to live in that kingdom. I want my hope to be in that kingdom as well. You can just quietly pray along with me. And after I finish that prayer, I'm just going to thank Jesus for what he's doing. And we're going to sing a final song uh, with the worship team and a choir. Or a couple of songs. But first, bow your head and close your eyes. If you've never if you've never had a chance or you've never given your life to Jesus and you want to be assured that you're going to live in that kingdom with him, then you just pray this quietly with me. Dear Jesus, I want to live in your kingdom with you forever. Please forgive my sins. Write my name in your book of life and adopt me into your family. In your name I pray, amen. Lord Jesus, now the rest of us, we just give you glory and honor. Some of us here today in this Christmas are absolutely overwhelmed with the evil and junk of our lives. Lord Jesus, Paul had a perspective we desperately need by the power of your Holy Spirit. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Father, I pray that this week, this Christmas, you would expand our revelation of the hope that is to come. That our faith and our hope in the kingdom that is to come would grow bigger and bigger and bigger until it outweighs the struggles and the suffering we're in right now. That you would take off the hard edge of bitterness and doubt and unbelief and that you would fill us with faith. You're going to take care of us. Thank you for coming as a baby. Thank you for Christmas. We worship you and we love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.